Hi guys and gals, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. We've got another very interesting one for you today. If you've listened before or you know me and you like the podcast, do me a favor and as you're listening, please leave a review. That would really help, even if you just leave a star rating, no comment, just put a review up there, that'd be great. Today we're talking with Malcolm, who's one of the London's foremost mudlarkers. For those of you who don't know, a mudlarker is someone in London who hangs out on the foreshore of the River Thames in London and searches for things that the river has left behind over the years. So that could range from anything from a 17th century clay pipe to Roman jewelry and pottery shards to Nazi aircraft shells or musket balls and coins that have been left throughout the ages. Please, if you're listening and you want to get an idea of the kind of things that we're talking about, please check out Malcolm's Instagram page, that's at Mud Historian while you're listening to get a greater sense of the vast historical record that he's unearthed and some of the extraordinary things that the river can give up. You can also check out my Instagram where I should have some pictures of the stuff that uh, that we're discussing. Mudlarkers today in London are thought of as anyone who roams the river's edge at low tide and searches for things. If you're a visitor to London, you'll probably see the people doing this. If you're walking across Millennium Bridge or by the South Bank or by Tate Modern, you're going to see at low tide people walking around some of them just looking at you know just walking along the the foreshore but a lot of people will actually actively be looking for things these are called in london mudlarkers almost anyone can find something interesting within about five minutes of searching but mudlarking wasn't always such a fun kind of benign hobby in its origins mudlarkers were quite wretched people usually young kids who may have been abandoned or orphaned and had no other way of making money for themselves my understanding is that they were particularly prevalent around the mid-1800s and aged in range from about 8 to 14 years old. Henry Mayhew, in his 1861 tome called London Labor and London Poor, describes the life of a 19th century mudlark as being a really difficult and desperate existence, especially for these young kids who perhaps didn't have a home or, or parents to look after them. They would have been ragged, dirty, wet, and lived alongside the river. If the kids were not orphans, it was oftentimes a situation where their dads were alcoholics and ran away uh, and drank all the money, leaving the families to fend for themselves. It may have been that some were Irish immigrants who had fled the terrible potato famine that was going on at roughly the same time in Ireland. These young kids would wait for the barges to deliver goods to the foreshore, and when bits of coal fell off into the mud, these, quote, mudlarkers would dive into the water, they were reportedly amazing swimmers, and grab the coal or wait until the tide went out. To collect it all. They also collected bits of rope, metal sh- rivets that may have come off the ships, and sell these for a pittance wherever they could. Some of the kids would have just have ragged clothes and that was it. That's all that that's all they owned. They would sleep on the barges of the by the river and were covered in vermin, quote, uh, according to uh, Mr. Mayhew. The kids would generally just eat bread, which they could usually afford, and also a pint of beer when they could afford that. Remember they were aged only up to fourteen years. In addition to their work collecting things, these young mudlarks would often steal if they had the opportunity. The police would harass them and treat them as vermin themselves, but luckily they learned to quickly to swim well and were known as uh, very strong and hardy boys and girls. So there were anecdotes of police throwing them off boats and they would just swim to shore like water rats and go back to swim out to the next docked boat and see what opportunities they could find there. Apparently, for many of them, the goal was to be sent to sea as part of the merchant marine if they could find a captain who would hire them. Mudlarking today is illegal 
activity as long as you have a license from the Port of London Authority, which apparently costs £40 for three years. The Thames is also a lot cleaner than it ever, ever was before. When it was effectively, back then it was effectively an open sewer. So if you imagine these kids um, swimming with clothes on in cold water, effectively an open sewer, uh, just, uh, you know, boggles the mind. This is borne out, the, the sorry, the, the cleanness of the river now is borne out by the diversity of wildlife we can find in the River Thames, including dolphins, seals, and even seahorses, apparently. So now you know the origin of mudlarking, please welcome Malcolm the Mudlarker, and please check out his Instagram while you're listening, at MudHistorian, which is really a fascinating Instagram page. He really goes into effort to describe the things that he's found, and he's, uh, it's, it's really an interesting read if you check it out, at Mud, at mud Historian on Instagram. I met Malcolm at his home in Walthamstone. We had a great chat amidst his collection of mudlarking artifacts. So without further ado, please welcome and enjoy Malcolm the Mud Historian. So Malcolm, great, great to meet you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Could you just tell us what what is mudlarking and how did you initially get into this? Yeah, sure. So um, in London, uh, the River Thames is tidal. So what that means is that twice a day um, you have a low tide. And what that means is that there's there's a... um, part of the uh, riverbed is exposed and you can go down and and walk around on it and we call that the foreshore and because London's obviously been inhabited since or the area's been inhabited since prehistoric times what that means is um, there's a huge opportunity to find stuff basically from the stone age through to the present day during those uh, few hours when uh, we can go and search the foreshore. So, mudlark is the name uh, given to people who go and do that, like myself. Um, and we go find a bunch of stuff, and it reveals um, a lot of interesting stories about uh, the city, you know, its inhabitants, and their and their past. And, and now I know you've the, you've got a lot of um, experience, historical experience. I know you were mentioning you did you went to university and you studied. Um, persecution of the Jewish people o- over the centuries, I believe, that you've mm-hmm. done sexuality mm-hmm. uh, or history of sexuality. To- we were talking briefly um, about before we started about the sexuality uh, of uh, and the finds that you that you can come across. And I think you mentioned in particular, and it's worth anyone who's who's listening to check out Malcolm's Instagram, Mud Historian. But he's got these very interesting. Were they made of bone? Now they're made of clay, actually okay. pipe clay, which is a very, uh, you know, it's a particular type of type of clay. Yeah, I guess I'm. Um, I guess the stuff I studied at, at college, although it was a long time ago now, and I've forgotten a lot of it, and uh, I haven't worked in, uh, you know, uh, professionally in anything to do with history, history since. But I guess I've always been attracted to what you might call sort of outsider. Outsider history, so history of kind of immigrants, history, what's called history from below, so, you know, ordinary working people, criminals, people who are judged to be deviant within the 
not anymore, thankfully, but within the context of their of their time. And you know what's really interesting about about mudlarking is it helps you find stuff that helps you understand those kind of people better because it didn't necessarily write a lot down in their lifetimes. And when people wrote about them, it tended to be from the perspective of you know, moralists or. Uh, judges or elite people, so looking at them from a sort of from from afar, outside of their of their community. So, you know, finding a lot of this stuff in the river where that where that was lost in there or just chucked in there as rubbish. You know, it's a good opportunity to kind of understand these sort of outsiders uh, a little bit better. And the object that Ben was just uh, referring to is a um, Georgian wood curler and. You know, these are found in, well, across Western Europe um, and in, in North America, right, anywhere where people wore wigs in the in the 18th century. And what these curlers were used for was basically to keep your wig curly. Uh, so you'd put a bunch of powder, pig fat, all sorts of horrible stuff, and a wig curler into the wig overnight to, to keep it in, in shape, because wigs were, were quite expensive. You'd have a bunch of them. It won, so you had to keep it, keep it looking good. And, you know, one thing that many people don't necessarily realise about these, these objects and, and wigs in general at that time is that they weren't just worn for fashion. They were worn because syphilis was rife in the, the 18th century. And, you know, one symptom of syphilis is, is hair loss. So wearing a wig could, you know, help disguise that, um, you know, in, in front of other people. And... You know, one reason why syphilis was was rife is because it was a whole bunch of prostitution. Um, it's obviously cliche, but it's the oldest profession in the world. Um, but there was a particular growth of it in in London after the Civil War into the 18th century, which meant more people getting syphilis, which meant more need for wigs and wig curlers. So, you know, there's lots of different ways to in, interpret, um, you know, interpret an object. But I think that's one interesting. You know, aspect as to why these wig curlers and wigs came came to be. Yeah, I mean that brings to mind some of the um, sort of Holbein paintings of of Henry VIII or the other royals, where they um, talk about the the idea that they may have been suffering from syphilis. Mm -hmm. And I get, uh, I'm pretty, I guess the time period that we're talking about is kind of 15th century through to uh even through today yeah people started wearing these things in the or wearing wigs in the the late the 1600s and then they sort of went out of fashion um towards the end of the um 1700s basically because it was a tax based on uh, on um i think it was wig powder but i might i might be wrong on that it might oh. be the wigs so, there was a tax based on something to do with wigs which right. made them prohibitively oh. expensive as well as the sort of natural cycle mm. of, of fashion i mean what you had in the um early 1900s was the dandy fashion um which was favored natural hair shorter cuts more understated and less of the kind of bling and extravagance that you'd had in the uh, in the in the later seventeen seventeen hundreds. So they kind of went out of fashion as well as became, becoming uh, more mm. expensive. I wonder if that was partly with the French Revolution as well, perhaps, and the the idea of the bourgeoisie with the, with the wigs, and perhaps it was something. Uh, one of those kind of social dynamics. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I haven't looked into that, but good, good food for and, thought. And the other interesting thing you pointed out before we started 
the Pitkin jar. Now again, you can see this, and I'm going to have a picture on my web, on my Instagram, uh, but also Malcolm on on Mud Historians. Can you just run through that very quickly? What you mentioned about the Pitkin and the yeah, so um, a Pipkin was a... Sorry, Pipkin, pardon me. Pipkin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, there's a lot of new terms that you discover <laughs> yeah. when you when you do this that we don't necessarily use anymore. Um, so, yeah, a Pipkin was um, cooking, named for a cooking pot, a, a clay cooking pot that was used roughly from the um, 15th century uh, through to the 17th um, century. And... You know, objects can often, you know, give give use to give rise to metaphors and sort of slang, you know, terms in popular culture. And back then, um, Pipkin was slang for a woman's uh, womb. And there was, there was a, a saying, according to some historians, that you know, to crack her Pipkin was, you know, a, a slang term for deflowering a, a, a woman. You know, so. You know, when you sort of find these items and sort of dig into, you know, what they meant, um, you know, in their time, you know, it's not often what you discover is not just about literally how they were used. So, for example, what was cooked in that vessel, but, you know, the other sort of meanings and sort of metaphors that sort of surrounded them, I'm kind of interested in, mm. in that stuff. And so you've got so many things here. It's amazing. I, I mean, I'm just looking around the room. He's, yeah, Malcolm's got loads of bits of um, pottery shards, Pipes, obviously, anyone who knows about mudlarking knows that you find loads of pipes. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've got some in my desk at work, which when I was trying to um, shirk a little bit, I picked some up just by the Millennium Bridge. Um, what, do you, what are some of the things that you're most excited about that you, that you found along the Forge Yeah, I mean, it's um, what gets mudlarks excited? I mean, that's an interesting question because I think different things get different people excited. You know, some people want to find... You know the most valuable thing. I get I get asked that a lot. It's the most valuable thing that you found, but the truth is very little is 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 valuable. I've got a couple of things that are, that are worth a bit, but not much to be honest. You don't. It would be the worst paid job in the world if you if you did it for a for a living. So it's not really not really about that. It doesn't really get me excited. Um, you know, other people are looking for kind of certain kinds of objects. Coins are very popular with people who people who metal detect. Other people get excited about things from a particular era, whether that's, you know, the Romans or the 17th century or whatever. But I think what gets me excited is is the story, really. Um, you know, if there's a, a, a story around, you know, the way the, the, the object was made, what it was used for, what it meant in popular culture... You know a broader set of events or a context it fits into. That's kind of what what me gets what gets me excited. And when I find something that's new in that respect, a story that I haven't discovered before, um, that's what I like. Mm. You know, I think because one thing I really like doing is combine when I talk about find on on social media or anywhere in a magazine article or, or whatever. I like combining the find with like historical records. So. I find a forged coin, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, let's say, well, I've got an example in my hand here. A forged one? A forged okay. counterfeit coin. So it's oh. a Victorian sixpence from uh, the 1840s mm. that I found. Um, it's not worth anything at all mm. um, in monetary value. But I find this really interesting because, you know, when I find this, I can, for example, go to the old Bailey, which for any... Um, uh, non-UK listeners is the um, 
no, like the Supreme uh, Court. Yes, yeah, kind yeah. of the sort of the main courthouse yeah. for the past four hundred years in in London. And you know what you can do there is you can go and search for records of of trials of people who. Um, you know, appeared at the court for either making or attempting to spend, you know, this particular coin worth this particular amount that was found to be forged in this particular year. And, you know, then you get to discover, you know, what they said in the court in terms of why were they attempting to spend a forged sixpence, for example, buying rhubarb. That's a real example at Covent Garden Market in, you know, um, in the 1840s. And... You know, the punishment for doing that, I mean, it seems incredibly harsh now, is transportation to Australia. Really? So, even if you were just attempting to pass off one mm. single coin that might get you a bunch of vegetables in a market, mm. you know, you could end up spending seven years of your life transported to uh, to Australia. So, to go back to your question, Ben, um, you know, what gets me excited, it's, it's not just the object, it's the story. Because it's the story that can be discovered around all these things. And that, that's what that's what does it for me. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the other, you, it was interesting what you said as well about um, some people are really fascinated by the monetary value. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I noticed as well in some of your finds was there, and perhaps some of your your um, peers who are mudlarkers, is there's um, there seems to have been a focus on so the Latin memento mori. So you found a glass, uh, perhaps you remember, maybe you don't, but I just saw it on your, your page, and it was part of, um, you, you referenced a painting, where they, this style of painting was very much about reminding people, there were skulls, there were extinguished candles, there were, it was about reminding people um, life short, and life obviously was, was much more, much shorter for people in those days. Yeah. Um, and I know I've seen some coins which people had, which said Memento Mori on. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I mean, first of all, though, just just to clarify, I don't think most mudlarks at all are interested in monetary value. That mm. tends to be what outsiders ask you yeah. about the hobby. Right. I, I don't know any mudlarks mm. that do this this for money. I mean, mudlarking as a term originated in the Victorian era, where it referred to sort of destitute children or. Uh, you know, people that went down to the foreshore tried to find a few pennies, bits of coal and stuff. You know, a bit in the, in the same way you might see scavengers on a, a landfill in Bangladesh or India now as mm. the equivalent of equivalent of that. So, no, so it was quite a derogatory term. And it, it, it was. Like, yeah. It was. I mean, if I'm honest, it's kind of ludicrous, really, that we use it now for this. I mean, it's you know, if you compare what we do now to the origin of the term, it's sort of hyper gentrified. You know, you sort of got a bunch of in many cases quite middle class people going around doing this for a, for a hobby I mean it's kind of crazy we call ourselves mudlarks when you compare ourselves to where it came from but you know everything needs a name right but anyway to go to go to go to your question uh, back to your question about uh, you know Memento Mori so um, we find a lot of objects from the 17th um, century and in that period Dutch still life painting was a big thing in you know northern European um, culture so you know paintings of everyday objects that could be ceramics could be knives that could be wine glasses and so on and so forth that often had you know and the inclusion of objects in those paintings often had symbolic um, value and we find a lot of those objects on uh, the River Thames and uh, wine glasses or not I've never found a whole wine but fragments of wine glasses being one one example and in these Dutch still life paintings which were called vanitas 
um, wine glasses were often overturned and that was there to really to symbol the futility of, of, of life, that it's short, that material goods aren't necessarily the route to, to happiness. And I always find it really interesting when I find one of these objects um, from the 17th century that appeared in one of these paintings, because it just gives me the opportunity to go and find out, you know, apart from drinking some wine from it and how it was made and what it looked like, you know, what are these objects what were they used to symbolise in the art of the day? And I, I kind of like that. Um, you know, it's just another avenue to go and, you know, find a story, like I said, around the, around the find. So thanks for asking that, because mm. it's, um, it's a bit of a passion of mine when I find this stuff. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's every, as you said, every, I think that's the key thing. Everything has, the, has, its, has its story. Are there, are there any that have, I don't know, you got, we could talk about this all day, so I'm, I'm aware, you know, I want to get to some of the items that you have found. Um, which which stories com are the most compelling for you personally? Have you ever felt emotion an emotional connection with with the, the things that you found based yeah. on that? I mean, I mean, of course. I mean, there's you know, I, when I was studying history at uh, at college, you know, it's always through text, and of course, the written word can be you know amazingly emotionally uh, you know affecting, but. You know, there's kind of magic in holding certain items from the past. You know, the, the past is multi-sensory. It's not just written down. So when you're holding an item from the past, you, how did it feel? What was its texture? You know, um, before the Industrial Revolution, you know, most of ob all objects were handmade, as we would, we would call it now. And you find the sort of clues or, or, or evidence of that handmadeness you know it might, might be a bit of pottery where you know the potter has sort of created direction um, decoration through pressing their finger or thumb into it and you see the imprint of a um, I see a fingerprint uh, within there it might be a Roman tile where an animal has walked across it while it was drying which gives you you know that uh, again very visceral um, connection with the with the past it might be something that someone has has made for themselves so for example you know when queen victoria died in um 1901 there was connection our connection in britain with the monarchy was still much stronger than it is today and you know there was a huge outpouring of, of national grief and i found um victorian farthing which is a coin that somebody had um cut out the head of victoria with a little loop on it so they could turn it into a, a you know a piece of what's called mourning jewellery so mm. you know express their sadness that that, that she has died and wow. you know it's you know when you find these things they can sort of the effort that people have put into them or the marks they've left behind on them you know can give you a sort of different type of personal connection with the past than you're going to get just from reading books or written stuff uh, mm. that comes from 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 history mm. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Roman um, aspect because uh, the, that was about 2,000 years ago mm -hmm. the Romans were here. And they actually, if I'm not mistaken, that London was actually the capital of the Roman Empire for some period, as, as I understand it. Yeah, it's complicated. Okay. Very complicated. We won't go into that. You're slightly right and slightly okay. wrong. Super complicated. It wasn't initially the, um, the, capital, of, uh, the capital of Britain, uh, although it did become that over time. And then... 
over time the Roman Empire fractured and had various emperors all claiming to be the, the Roman Emperor in different places but that's what makes Roman history history interesting that it's not as monolithic as, as people think it is you know there is a particular Roman history that that happened in Britain um, which you know the Roman stuff we find helps you helps you get into and now again you've got so many exciting things here so I want to talk about you know what what are the things that you're the most excited about have you um, I noticed that like, you, you've got bones here, you've got keys. What would these have been keys to? Because I know the Clink Prison was just not far from, and then you obviously got items there, ammunition, all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, sure. Let me. I'll pick out a couple. I'll pick yeah. out a, a couple. A couple of. Um, I'll pick out a couple of things. Um, so I'll come back to the keys in a minute, but let me start with this. So this is a Roman um, hairpin. So it's made out of bone. Um, originally probably somewhere between seven and nine inches inches long and they're not uncommon you know any um, Roman excavation whether it's a villa or a town or whatever will turn up a, a whole a whole load of these these things but you know normal people like my like myself with day jobs and nothing to do with history and archaeology don't often get to go or I've never mm. never been on a mm. you know an excavation of a, of a Roman site and one of the most amazing things about the foreshore is that these things wash up you know at our feet if you know where to look in almost pristine um, condition and you don't need any special gear or skills you just need to be in the right place at the right time and you can find one of these um, one of these things you know, and so cool. Wow. And um, I think what's interesting about this is um, that you know it gives you a way into understanding you know Roman conceptions of beauty. And until a, a couple of years ago, until I started mudlarking, it's not something I'd ever really really looked into. But you know, Roman hairdressing was super cool. It was incredibly ornate. Um, you know, um, Roman women as a signifier of status. You know, have to have very complex um, hairdos that were tied up and pinned up using these pins and often using twine um, that was, uh, you know, so the hairstyle was sewn into place in some instances. And, you know, before I found this, probably, well, maybe one of the um, last people to um, uh, hold it was a Roman slave hairdresser. So high-status Roman women living in London and across the Roman world didn't do their own hair. You know, they often had um, slave hairdressers to, to do it um, for them. So this was uh, a person or a number of persons retained within, you know, a, a Roman household solely to fulfil that that function. And, you know, it's common amongst mudlarks to wonder, you know, who was the last person to hold this before I found it? And I just find that, you know, to go back to your question, Ben, you know, I just find that very exciting, very provocative to kind of, you know, think that somebody, you know... Um, very different to our to ourselves, you know. Might have been the last person to hold that item before it. I just got lucky and it washed up at my feet one one Wednesday morning before I went to <laughs> before mm. I went to work. No, you're right. It's in, it's incredible to think that, and I think there's that kind of metaphysical or just psychological connection that you somehow feel to to that person, don't you? Um, yeah, indeed. Why is there so much ammunition in the Thames? Because I know yeah. a lot of people find ammunition. Yeah, that's a good question. So. I mean, I um, spent 10 years of my life living in, in America and I don't own guns. I'm not particularly into guns. I've got a, quite a typical British kind of scepticism about having shitloads of guns in, 
in a, oh, come in on, you have a whole room full of guns next to him? No, that's what you're... <laughs> but, but, but that said, I do find it very interesting. And lots of mudlarks um, don't pick up ammunition. Now, they're right to do so in some instances, because in, in Britain it's illegal to own live ammunition, doesn't matter how old, how old it is. But a lot of people leave um, the cartridge cases, which are perfectly legal to own. I don't. I pick them all up because I find them I find them very interesting uh, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, um, you know, warfare is obviously you know some of the most momentous, sort of tumultuous sort of events that have happened in history. So it's a way into to understanding that. But also, some of the reasons. Um, that this stuff has ended up in the in the Thames. So let's take a couple of examples. So what I've got here is a round that was fired by a Browning heavy machine gun, um, which was American. It wasn't wasn't British. It's from World War Two. Now some of these weapons were given to British forces, but they weren't generally fired in London. So why have we got a Browning World War Two? American made in 1944 cartridge case in the Thames and we're never going to know for sure but one theory is that you know these things were fired by American bombers going on raids um, over continental Europe and you know they were rattling around in the you know in, inside the, the fuselage of the of the plane these planes returning for those raids you know they didn't really want this stuff rolling around so they would chuck it out mm. and if they were using the Thames to navigate back to, to base mm. you know it's an obvious place to just throw it out of the uh, you know the, the cockpit window and and get 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 rid of it so you know that's one example you know we've got a very tangible reminder of the role that you know you had three million US servicemen in World War Two passing through Britain so a tangible reminder of, of, of that Incredible, Another reason yeah. why you get ammo um, is discarded souvenirs. So lots of, of British servicemen, as American servicemen did in World War Two, World War One, and, and prior conflicts, brought stuff back, right? <laughs> um, and some of that stuff was contraband. They weren't allowed to have it, so they were told to throw it off troop ships or... Maybe they decided they, you know, didn't really want live ammo kicking around at, at, at home subsequently. So they threw it in the Thames. And um, one um, uh, piece of ammunition that I found that I think probably got there for that reason is a round, Soviet Union round, now, uh, from World War Two. Now, there were obviously no Soviet soldiers stationed in Britain during that, um, during that conflict. And the British Army weren't using any guns or ammunition provided to them for the Soviet Union. So the most likely scenario is that that bullet was a souvenir. Um, and, you know, where British Army and Red Army troops met was right at the end of, of World War Two in northern Germany, where the two, well, you know, British Army advancing from the west, Soviets coming from the east, met up. And... We know from some memoirs, diaries that were kept that bullets and badges and stuff sometimes sometimes exchanged. So I'll never know for sure, but you know my sort of hypothesis or sort of um, imagining, if you will, is that you know this was a bullet that was a British uh, soldier souvenir, brought it back to London, and for whatever reason didn't want it anymore, threw it in the hmm. Thames. And what I kind of feel 
what interests me, you know, going back to your earlier question, excites me, if you will, about that is that, you know, ammunition's obviously made for, made for killing. It's got incredibly negative connotations at first glance. But if you think about the moment in which this object was acquired from, you know, by a British soldier, it might have been a moment of great joy. You know, the bullet was never fired. You know, it was the end of the war, and for him it might have signified happiness and, and hope rather than the natural connotations we have around, you know, that, that, that kind of object. Well, I guess that goes back again to what you were saying before about the, sh- the story behind each object, and I, I think that's a, that's a fascinating story as well. That soldier who's been through all that grief, horror, everything you can imagine, standing one night, maybe after a few drinks, mm-hmm. and decides to jettison his... Memories or his keepsakes into the into the water. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, I mean I, I I've read a few articles about. I mean this is pretty grim, so apologies, guys. But um, you know Japanese um, the skulls of Japanese soldiers being found in lakes and and rivers in the U.S. I mean this actually didn't really happen happen to a great extent in in the U.K. But. You know, there were a reasonable number of, of US GIs that actually brought back skulls from the Pacific Theatre of War and then, you know, found these things and all their descendants found these things in their attics, you know, and they continue to turn up now, you know, just thrown away in, in lakes and, and, and rivers. So, you know, souvenirs of war is, a, you know, quite a fascinating, sometimes grim, you know, um, aspect of history that when you go and search around in the places that people use to hide things like rivers sometimes you come across for better or for better or worse yeah well yeah you, you tend to think um about the japanese being the perpetrators of the uh, horrible atrocities during during wartime in terms of the treatment of the the pow's but that's interesting that you actually have heard the anecdotal evidence that the or perhaps that was a reaction to it that they, that they, there were some of these keepsakes brought back. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get into them. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole big other big yeah, discussion yeah, sure, about sure. the morality of these of of, yeah. of finding these things and how they came 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 mm-hmm. to require. I mean, I'm not going to get into that now. Suffice to say that you know the the objects are very provoking in terms of their mm. in terms of their history. But you know the, the we also get very provoke you know thought provoking objects in London uh, uh, as well. I mean. You find a lot of beads um, in in the Thames, and when you first find them, these things are quite quite beautiful. You know, they are brightly coloured, sometimes got quite striking uh, patterns um, on them. But you know, beads have got you know for us now quite a disturbing. A lot of these beads have got quite a disturbing history because they were used for trade with um, indigenous people, both in North America. You know, and um, on the west coast of of Africa. So, you know, in North America, we often find these. Sorry, in connection with North America, we often find on the Thames these tiny beads that are red on the outside and have got a dark um, interior. And they're Hudson's Bay trade beads. Um, and you know, Hudson's Bay, as many people know, Hudson's Bay Company was involved in the fur trade in in North America with um, indigenous people there. And Basically, um, six strings of these beads was exchanged for one uh, beaver pelt, mm. and you know, obviously, that unleashed a whole relationship between Europeans and Native Americans that had very different consequences for both of mm. of those groups of people. And similarly, um, we find beads that were used for trade in 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 West Africa, and. 
they weren't the only thing that were traded. Literally, hundred different objects were were traded in that part of the world. But um, you know, one uh, thing that was received in exchange for these Western goods was obviously slaves, people. So sometimes these tiny objects that ostensibly look quite beautiful mm. you know are you know when you dig into them and research them can take you into some of the darkest mm. uh, places uh within within history and you know i think you know it's important that we that we acknowledge that you know not everything is a you know that we find on the thames is a piece of treasure that you know mm. we should be excited about and get you know mm. all about getting lots of likes and social mm. media mm. you know it can you know, uh, it could be a pathway into some of the darker parts of history, that, and a reminder that we don't ever really want to repeat some of these, some of these things. So, you know, you find it all on the river—the good, the bad, and the ugly of, you know, uh, mankind's past. Well, that, that's fascinating. And speaking of, of dark things in the river, I mean, have you ever found any bodies or anything like that? You, or, I've never found a body, thankfully. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. God. Um, People do find human remains. So a mudlarker um, last year found one of the earliest known Homo sapiens. Um, really? Being discovered wow. on the on the Thames. The closest that I've got um, is a couple of human teeth. Um, I don't feel so bad about human teeth because maybe someone had a terrible toothache and one of the thing whipped yeah. out. Maybe they found a hell of a lot better when that thing was out and thrown <laughs> in the river. So yeah. hey, so going from the dark to the maybe not yeah. so not so yeah. dark, and. Um, you know, tooth extraction. Uh, it's quite an interesting, um, you know, an interesting, interesting topic. So, one of the teeth I've I've found, um, you know, is 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 maybe based on the the fine spot. I can't be sure without any carbon testing, but maybe based on the fine spot from the uh, Victorian era. And in the Victorian era, you would have uh, what was known as tooth drawers that would travel around um, fairgrounds. And basically, this was a guy. On a stage at a fair that would pull your tooth out if you've got a toothache and you wanted rid of the thing. At a fair? Jeez. At a fairground, yeah. And I think where this thing gets crazy is that, um, you know, these guys were often accompanied by an assistant whose job it was to distract the patient. And some of these guys dressed up as, or these assistants dressed up as clowns. And while the um, tooth drawer had the patient in a headlock with a pair of pliers pulling out the... Um, with no painkiller. With no painkiller, yeah. of course. Yeah, absolutely. Pulling out the tooth. This guy was sort of... The, the assistant was like clowning around in a crazy costume, basically trying to take their mind off what was what was happening to them. So, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so um, human teeth, they turn up on the river quite often. And, you know... Um, obviously got in there for a number of different circumstances but um, I would like to believe that uh, you know being rid of that tooth uh, provided some relief to some of the people that uh, that, that chucked them uh, chucked them in there fantastic um, now I'm aware we're coming up on time now is there any um, is there any if people do, do you encourage people to contact you about your finds um, or do you obviously you've got your your Instagram mud historian um, do you share your finds with the with the museums in London? Or yeah, so um, everybody mudlarks on the on the Thames has to have a license to do so. You can get one from the Port Authority if anyone's listening, and you think this floats your boat and you want to give mudlarking uh, mudlarking a go. And um, one of the conditions of of holding that license is that um, you should take any finds um, over three hundred years old 
to uh, what's called the Fine Liaison Officer of the Mu uh, Museum of London. So that's an expert that basically looks at the stuff that we that we find uh, as mudlarks and decides um, which finds should be recorded to add to the, the sort of archaeological record. And there's a huge database called the uh, Portable Antiquity Scheme where all this stuff gets um, you know gets gets recorded. So I do that. As should anybody that. Um, so everything you find, you you register with them. Not everything. Okay. Not everything. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. up to them to decide what they think is uh, adding to the record of mm -hmm. uh, and tells us something new about mm -hmm. about about what's out what's out there. But um, I would I mean anyone um you know on on Instagram is is more than happy to get in get in touch. I mean I'll obviously people stuff. You know, if I can, I don't. You know, I'm by no means a, an expert on 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 all kinds of objects. But if I can, more than happy to help people ID their stuff or provide a point of view, regardless of where it was. You know, where it was found. I mean, you know, stuff we found in the Thames turns up on colonial era sites in the states, over in Amsterdam, Northern Europe. I mean, you know, as far afield as Australia. You know, I mean, you know, it's remarkable how far a lot of this stuff traveled in the colonial um era so you know i love kind of um you know meeting other people that that, that find stuff i mean you know, we can all learn from from one another brilliant well malcolm the mud, mud historian thank you so much i really do appreciate you taking the time tonight thanks so much cheers ben appreciate you coming and having a chat Wow, what an interesting conversation. Thanks so much to Malcolm, the Mud Historian. Check him out on at mudhistorian.com. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Have a great day. Speak soon. Bye. Live.